0: Believe it or not, my Russian colleagues are pretty normal people. They share a lot of memes. Some of them play video games. Most of them seem to have pets they're crazy about. And I'm pretty sure they all put their pants on one leg at a time. So it's easy for me to forget that in a lot of ways, they and I are living in pretty different worlds. That's because the country where they have citizenship is one of the world's worst perpetrators of transnational repression. That means Russia is one of the countries that most aggressively tries to repress its citizens abroad, so that even Russians who manage to leave the country still have to worry about being targeted by their government if they run afoul of it in some way, whether that's through independent journalism, activism, or even just refusing to join the war against Ukraine. And you don't have to look very hard to find examples of this. Just last week, after I started working on this podcast episode, Seven members of the Russian-Belarusian rock group B2, who have been outspoken critics of Vladimir Putin and the war against Ukraine, were jailed in Thailand, supposedly over some problems with their concert permit. Russia's ambassador to Thailand denied that Moscow was involved, but a source who spoke to The Guardian said the band members were detained at the Russian authorities' request and that Russia has given Thailand a blacklist of musicians it once deported. When Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Maria Zakharova was asked about the situation, she accused the band of sponsoring terrorism. Finally, after the group spent nearly a week in a crowded migration prison, they were deported to Israel on January 31st. The situation seems to have ended as well as anyone could have hoped, but not every Russian citizen who finds himself in the government's crosshairs is so lucky. Take the case of Rafael Shepolev. Shepedev is a Russian activist who had been living in Tbilisi, Georgia for about two years, when, on October 12th, according to one of his friends, he left home to go grocery shopping and never returned. The next day, a misdemeanor case was filed against him in Russia. But it wasn't until December that human rights workers managed to find Shepardov in a detention center in central Russia. In the meantime, He'd been hit with new felony charges for his past activism that could see him sentenced to more than 20 years in prison the human rights group department one said he had been tricked by russian security services into entering russian occupied south ossetia and that was basically all she wrote then there was the case of dmitry setrakov not an activist just a 39 year old guy who didn't want to fight in the war After he was drafted and sent to southern Ukraine in 2022, he fled to Armenia. He lived there until early December 2023, when he was arrested, if you can call it that, by Russian military police in the Armenian city of Gyumri and taken to a Russian military base. A few weeks later, he was reported to be in police custody in Russia. There's another case like this that really caught my attention because it happened to a Russian activist in Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, where I used to live. I'll let my first guest today, Dan Storiev, tell you about that one in more detail in a minute. Later, I'll speak to Garakovskaya, a research director at Freedom House, about the other methods Russia uses to intimidate, harm, and sometimes repatriate its citizens abroad, and about how this has changed since the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I'm Sam Brazil, Medusa in English's senior news editor, and you're listening to The Naked Pravda.
1: Howdy, folks. I bet you thought you were rid of me this week, eh? I'm Kevin Rothrock, your regular host, but not this week. And yet, here I am, only briefly, with a quick news segment just to give listeners a taste of the recent goings-on in Russia. I've tried to feature a review of the news on this podcast before. I've thought about covering recurring subjects and maybe even finding theme music to make the whole thing feel structured and official, but honestly, the news cycle is chaotic. And rather than try to force current events into familiar boxes, I'm just going to share some stories that I think, in purely subjective terms, are interesting for being important, stupid, weird, and so on. So let's jump in. And I'll get back to Sam and this week's feature story about Russian transnational repressions in just a few minutes. Have you ever been so mad that you wanted to punch somebody? Of course you have. It happens to everyone. If cars came equipped with loaded pistols, highway traffic would make mass murderers of us all. Happily, the story I'm about to describe concerns a young man who says he only wants to hit people and just in the confines of a gym sparring session. Still, it was a slightly disturbing reaction to being expelled from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. The young man so eager to exercise his fists is named Dmitry, and the university admitted him last year as part of the government's new education quotas for Ukraine invasion veterans and their children. Dmitry, who belongs to the latter category, got into the school's Applied Mathematics and Informatics Department, despite scoring less than half the points needed on Russia's college entrance exam. Without the quota benefits, he'd have needed a 290 on the test. His score was 127. According to an investigation published by journalists at iStories, Russia's top universities admitted more than 800 veterans and their kids last year. And most of them either failed their entrance exam or didn't take it at all. Dmitry's dad spent a year fighting in Ukraine, where he was eventually injured. Thanks to legislation Vladimir Putin signed last summer, that was enough to get his son a spot at MFTI. Sadly for Dimitri, the school kicked him out after one semester when his absences due to illness started piling up and he fell behind on his work. On February 1st, 2024, we got another update to the university drama. Dimitri can reapply to universities this year using the same veterans quota benefits. The new legislation here specifies no time period for the preferential terms, so the quotas currently exist in perpetuity, say spokespeople for the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. On Monday, January 29th, rumors flew that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky had fired Ukrainian Armed Forces Commander-in-Chief Valery Zeluzhny. The Defense Ministry and Zelensky's own office later refuted these reports, but journalists in Kiev have confirmed that Zelensky has asked Zeluzhny to step down and the latter refused to resign. A few days later, on Thursday, Zaluzhny authored an op-ed published by CNN, where he complained about the inability of the state institutions in Ukraine to improve the manpower levels of our armed forces without the use of unpopular measures. At the time of this recording, the Washington Post just reported that the government of Ukraine has informed the White House in the United States that President Zelensky has decided to fire his top military commander, General Valery Zeluzhny. That's according to two people familiar with the discussion. The Biden administration has reportedly neither endorsed nor objected to the decision, calling it Zelensky's sovereign choice. Investigative journalists at the Dossier Center released a new report with lots of drone footage of a mansion compound thingy allegedly owned by Vladimir Putin. The site is north of St. Petersburg, just 20 miles from the Finnish border, and besides the uncharacteristically modern architecture, the most memorable takeaway is that the grounds are four times bigger than the land registration paperwork allows, and the surrounding barbed wire fence actually claimed a little waterfall that used to be open to the public. Now there's a luxury sitting area with a private VIP view of the area. Vladimir Putin stole a waterfall. The Court of Arbitration for Sport... Sport, not sports. Found Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva guilty of doping and imposed a period of four years of ineligibility. That's retroactive, which means she loses all her medals in the Beijing 2022 Olympic Winter Games. The United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee called the ruling a significant win. Not only for Team USA athletes, but for athletes worldwide who practice fair play and advocate for clean sport. On Tuesday, January 30th, the whole Russian internet, that is the RU top-level domain, went down for a couple of hours. Coordination officials blamed the outage on flawed software involving the domain name system security extensions, but the incident renewed fears that Russia's digital sovereignty plans mean the days are numbered before state officials take control over Russian Internet users' access to the World Wide Web. Pro-Kremlin pranksters Vovin and Lexus keep fooling prominent writers into admitting on tape to sending money to Ukraine. If you're a prominent writer out there, don't talk about this on tape. In December, the duo got Boris Akunin and Dmitry Blikov, causing extraordinary legal problems for Akunin and leading publishers and others to pull their books this week, they pranked acclaimed novelist Ludmila Ulitskaya into revealing that she donates book royalties to Ukraine. Immediately afterward, AST, one of the largest book publishing companies in Russia, announced that it was suspending her payments. Contracts be damned. The Mendeleev University of Chemical Technology subsequently revoked her honorary professorship, and Moscow libraries have stopped lending her books. And let's finish with a slightly happier literary story. One of Russia's most famous 20th century novels has returned to the silver screen. Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita is back, baby, reinterpreted by American-Russian filmmaker Michael Lokshin. State pundits and propagandists have attacked the director for anti-war and anti-Putin comments, but the movie had a good opening week, topping Russia's box office and earning more than half a million dollars on its first day. Not a bad sum for a Russian-made film. The movie was filmed in 2021, before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and Lakhshen got roughly 10 million bucks in funding from Russia's Cinema Foundation, the state's key funding agency for the domestic film industry. Meduza film critic Anton Dolan quite liked the new adaptation, saying that it manages to retain the sharpness of the original source, which mocks Soviet power, and at the same time offers the viewer an innovative perspective on a classic text. And with that, now back to Sam and this week's show.
0: I'll let my first guest today, Dan Storiev, tell you about that one in more detail. You're listening to The Naked Pravda.
2: My name is Dan Storiev, and I work for OVD Info, which is a major Russian human rights defense organization. And I run the English language dimension of the organization. So I'm in charge of interfacing with the media and also just kind of leading our global effort towards Western audiences.
0: So who is Lev Skoryakin?
2: Yeah, so Lev Skoryakin, he's a a left-wing activist. He was a part of various left-wing organizations. I think the Levy Front, the Left Front. Him and his friend were involved in all kinds of left-wing activism. So at one point, they went out on an action in Moscow, I believe it was. It was called the Czechist Day. And it was supposed to, so Czechists, that's how... Some people in Russia call law enforcement officers. It kind of echoes back to the KGB era. And Czechist is a sort of a, a colloquial colloquial term for like a security service agent, right? Uh, so Lev Skaryakin and his friend, Ruslan Abasov, Lev and Ruslan, they went out onto the street with a banner saying, you know, congrats on the Czechist day. So nothing really major, nothing too big. They're, they weren't violent or anything. That was in 2021 in Moscow. And they were standing next to the FSB building. So they got detained for that. And they, of course, were harassed and pressured by the authorities. But then they were released briefly and they were supposed to go back to court, both of them, both of these activists, but they, got terrified, of course, because while well, you're dealing as a left-wing activist, if you're like an anarchist, if you're sort of a, a libertarian leftist in Russia, Russia is not a really safe place for you. You know, some people might think that, oh, Russia is this continuation of the Soviet Union, and it's actually a great place for leftists. It's not. In fact, anarchists and leftists of all stripes are getting routinely persecuted in Russia as a have written repeatedly, and uh, I think most notably in my op-ed for the Jacobin a few months ago. And so they both got cold feet, and Ruslan and R- Ruslan and Lev, they escaped Russia, they left Russia. They've been kind of moving all over the world, that's that's my understanding of it. But Lev basically surfaced in Kyrgyzstan, and Abasov, Ruslan Abasov, he's a really interesting case, because he was trying to get an asylum in Croatia, and then Croatia deported him despite him having this record of being a sort of an anti-Kremlin activist, being this, you know, somebody who stood up for, for his freedom in Russia, stood up against the Kremlin. They've deported him into Bosnia. So they deported him out of the EU because they decided that, that Ruslan Abbasov is this extremely dangerous individual. And that's a huge problem, because you have this situation where all these activists, they're trying to find shelter in the EU, they're trying to find shelter in the West, and Europe isn't necessarily extremely safe. And of course, there, were, there was also this case of this this Chechen guerrilla fighter who was shot shot dead, I believe in Berlin, by a Russian agent.
0: Dan is referring here to Zelim Khan Khangoshvili, a former Chechen separatist commander, and a Georgian citizen who was murdered in a Berlin park in August 2019 when a man approached him on a bicycle and shot him twice in broad daylight. Witnesses saw the man throw his gun and his bike into a nearby river and called the police, and he was detained soon after. Investigative journalists figured out before long that the Russian passport the man was carrying contained a fake name and had been issued just a month before his trip to Germany. The Russian government denied orchestrating the killing, and Vladimir Putin has claimed, without providing any evidence, that Hongashvili was one of the organizers of the 2004 Moscow metro bombing. He called Hongashvili a cruel and bloodthirsty person and denied knowing anything about his murder, saying it's a criminal milieu and anything can happen. In 2021, the German government expelled two Russian diplomats in response to the murder, which it said Moscow had ordered.
2: So, again, Europe isn't necessarily safe, but it's safer than... You know a whole lot of other countries. It's safer than Bosnia. It's safer than Kyrgyzstan, as we found out in Levskayaevkin's case. So Levskayaevkin, he was about to get. He was in the process actually of moving to Berlin, to move, moving to Germany, right? So he was figuring out his visa. And then local authorities, Kyrgyz authorities, sort of came in into the pressure of the Russian state, of the Kremlin. They took away his passport, they put all sort of pressure on him, and eventually they've kidnapped him. And in collaboration with the Russians, they disappeared him and then delivered him into Moscow. On the way to Moscow, he was beat up and otherwise brutalized.
0: So if we can back up and slow down a little bit, when you say he was kidnapped, what does that mean? Did someone like beat him up and put him in a bag and drive him away? Like, what does it look like?
2: So the information that we have is that it was in Kyrgyzstan and then either the local authorities or the FSB pretending to be local authorities, what have you, basically got him, put him in the car and then moved him across the border, whether or not, I, I'm assuming it was by, by plane but or by train, we don't really know. And then he wound up in Moscow.
0: So after a few weeks of him just missing, it's one of you guys' lawyers from OVD Info who found him in Moscow.
2: Yes. So it was our affiliate lawyer. It was our affiliate lawyer, Evgenia Grigoreva, who found him and she did that basically by just, you know, figuring out where he was going to be held. She called the court. She basically what she did is that she called up the the authorities responsible for like jails and, and courts and sort of figured it out from there. And yes, and then she found him. And then she worked with him on preparing his defense. And ultimately, he was released.
0: But it's kind of surprising, right, that he was just released with a pretty large fine if they went through all the trouble to get him back to Russia do you think it was do you think there was an order at the top behind this or were there just some really enterprising Kyrgyz security officials who saw an opportunity to win some favor
2: that could be that i mean it's a part of a larger pattern where the kremlin is trying to communicate to exiled russians and to anyone else who is listening is that if you are standing up against the kremlin you're no longer safe and this is important right because you have these You know, many dictatorial authoritarian states, their opponents, right? The opposition, activists, what have you, they often tend to flee these states, right? They tend to flee and sort of find safe safe harbor elsewhere, right? Because it's impossible, very often it's impossible for them to work within the country that they're focusing on. Because there will be harassment, there will be imprisonment and so on and so forth. We've already seen in Russia with Alexei Navalny, Ilya Yashin, Vladimir Karamorza, all these dissidents who did have a chance to kind of be outside of Russia, and they decided to stay. And as a result, they were thrown behind bars for God knows how many years. Navalny came back from Germany. Karamorza is a dual Russian-British citizen. He, you know, he didn't yield. They both, they decided that it's, you know, it's important for them to stay in Russia, and then They were thrown behind bars. But right now, the state is basically communicating that like, hey, you know, even if you escape, it's you, you're not, you're not necessarily safe. You're not safe because what we're going to do, we're going to establish these precedents, right? We're going to put pressure on the governments that we can put pressure on to kick you out, to deport you, to detain you. And this can take many forms, right? Kyrgyzstan is probably the most kind of horrifying example of them all, arguably, because, you know, the Russian operatives could just basically like walk in, grab the guy and kidnap him.
0: Are there any other cases of transnational repression that OVD Info has worked on that that come to mind that stand out to you?
2: Well, I mean, the thing about transnational uh, repression, rather than talk about individual cases, I would say, I think it's really interesting to talk about larger trends. And I think it's really important for for your listeners, for our listeners to kind of understand this, that it's not just, you know, let's say Central Asia, right? It's not just Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. And it's not always about just Kidnapping people, or arresting people, or you know, the name of that—it's also about preventing people from kind of living their life. I mean, if we if we're coming back to Kyrgyzstan, I think a really interesting example is the story of Krasnaya Krysha, and Krasnaya Krysha translated as Red Roof. So it was a community center which was opened up by these enterprising anti-war Russian exiles, and if you read about them they are you know extremely were extremely progressive with what they were trying to do they were a family uh they really wanted to integrate into kyrgyzstani society their daughter was lurian kyrgyz they really wanted to kind of bring these communities together right russian exiles and then i guess kyrgyzstani civil society and then they faced all the same tactics that they would face in russia harassment bullying from the authorities threats of arrests, of deportations, and so on and so forth.
0: The Red Roof co-working and co-living space closed in March 2023. Central Asia analyst Timur Umarov told Medusa that the situation shows Kyrgyzstan's current political regime welcomes Russians, but only under the condition that they don't speak out about their political views.
2: And so you have this situation where the Kremlin kind of created this paradigm within which all these different countries are incentivized to put more pressure on exiles. And you know, those of you who are listening to this in English, you're probably living in the West and you might be thinking, oh, well, but you know, my country doesn't do this. My country is, you know, we are supporting Ukraine and opposing the Kremlin on the national level. But the thing is, Coming back to the Ruslan Abbasov case that we started this conversation with, your country might also be involved in putting these dissidents, these anti-war activists, putting them at risk. Like, for example, you know, like, like Croatia did when they deported that poor guy into Bosnia. And just think about how many of these activists who are now in detention, who've been kidnapped, who've been you know, abused, harassed, stalked, etc. How many of them could have been saved is if they were able to find safe harbor in Europe, safe harbor in the West, where it is, again, not perfectly safe, but it's relatively safer than, you know, what they're exposed to in the outside of the EU and Britain and, and the UK in the US. Sorry, That's, I think, a really important thing to kind of emphasize that these These policies, which are designed to harm and to hinder Russian anti-war immigrants, Russian anti-war exiles, they are essentially working hand-in-hand with the Kremlin, whether they, you know, whether the people who designed them want it or not. At the top of
0: the show, I told you about B2, the Russian rock band whose members were arrested in Thailand in January. After their arrest, Medusa spoke to a migration lawyer about the risks Russians may face outside of Russia, especially if they're politically active and oppose the war in Ukraine. Among other things, the lawyer said that Thailand is not a safe place for Russians, and that last year, the Thai government approved an extradition treaty with the Russian government. The lawyer also named Indonesia and Cambodia as countries with similar risk levels. High-risk countries, they said, include Armenia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Tajikistan, and Azerbaijan, which share a criminal database with Russia, as well as Iran and North Korea. The lawyer also pointed out that the Russian government has made significant efforts in the last few years to build up cooperation with foreign countries' law enforcement agencies, with Russia's interior minister repeatedly going to China and Russia's prosecutor general visiting Iran, Tanzania, Cuba, and the UAE. We're not naming the lawyer because since Medusa has been designated as an undesirable organization in Russia, they could be prosecuted for speaking to us. So it makes sense that Russia can easily target its citizens and countries it borders or has alliances with. But to get more insight into how the Kremlin engages in transnational repression all over the world, including in countries that are usually considered safer, and to learn how this has changed or not in the last two years, I reached out to Yana Garakovskaya, research director at Freedom House. I asked her about these stories of these abductions that I'd seen in the news. And she started by giving me a more thorough definition of transnational repression.
3: What we mean by transnational repression um, are tactics They can be physical or digital, direct or indirect, that governments use to reach across borders to silence dissent or to harass or harm um, dissidents or activists, journalists, sometimes it's students, former insiders. And Russia is actually one of the world's top 10 perpetrators of transnational repression. You know, obviously high, really high profile attacks and poisonings that have happened in Europe in previous years, but also just, you know, uh, attacks against uh, or detention and deportation of Chechens from Europe. And so these latest uh, incidents we view as sort of part of a longer pattern of this transnational repression. The the difference this year and in the past year in 2022, I guess 2022 and 2023, has been that the targeting has pivoted to people who are somehow connected to, you know, an anti-war effort or are kind of active against the war.
0: When Freedom House released its special report on transnational repression in 2021, three years ago, The authors wrote that the Russian government doesn't use coercive measures against the Russian diaspora as a whole, and that instead it focuses on repressing activism at home, basically, other than targeting some high-profile individuals. Is this still accurate, or have things changed since the full-scale war started?
3: I would say, pre the full scale invasion of Ukraine, the kind of modus operandi of Russia or the Kremlin was to go after really high profile targets, and especially people viewed as former insiders, right? So you had like former FSB or maybe just former kind of economic insiders. Those were really the targets. Whereas, you know, the, the broader Russian diaspora, even activists, were not pursued with as much force. And that's definitely shifted. And that kind of falls in line with what we see with other governments that perpetrate transnational repression, whether you know it's the Saudi government or China. A lot of it is about what's happening domestically. And so it can shift over time because what the government or the regime views as sort of dangerous or problematic to itself also depends on what it's doing at home. There's a few exceptions to that. You know, for instance like rwanda just goes out goes after everyone who lives abroad it has a very kind of specific way of committing transnational repression you know but i would say for for other countries it's mostly about whatever the the pain point is for the regime itself and obviously the pain point for the kremlin is the war in ukraine
0: the last time the naked pravda did an episode on transnational repression which was also back in 2021 everything kind of had the caveat that Chechnya under Ramzan Kadyrov was the exception and functions differently. Freedom House called Chechnya a unique example of a subnational regime operating its own transnational repression campaign. Is that still the case?
3: It's still the case. I would say, if anything, the war made the situation worse. Um, The wars made the situation for transnational repression worse in actually a couple of different ways. So I'll start with what it's made worse for Chechens. So we have several examples of Chechens who may have resettled in Ukraine originally, who then fled the war. And as they were trying to cross into Poland or another country, they were detained on the border and some of them are facing extradition to Russia. It also, in general, I think the war has sort of swept some of this under the carpet. There, You know, what has also happened in Europe over the last few years is a huge rise in xenophobia and especially kind of anti-Muslim sentiment and unfortunately a lot of the Chechens we see um, targeted are being being affected by that. So it's kind of become even more difficult for us to determine whether something is transnational repression, because often we look at or we look for signs that the person has been specifically targeted by the origin government. And when that happens in immigration cases, it's usually because the government accuses a person of terrorism or membership in an extremist group or, you know, something else that will get their asylum application or immigration application flagged, basically. In Europe, it's become really difficult because honestly. Governments are just going after migrants in general in Europe. And so some of these Chechens who have been sent back to Russia, it's not totally clear that Russia was the active agent in them going back. But certainly what happened to them when they landed in Russia has been terrible. I mean, several have have disappeared. So that's been one effect is that the war has sort of covered up this other trend. What we also saw last year, and we've continued to see this year, is that because the situation has become for rights and freedoms inside Russia so terrible, it's actually becoming more of a host country for other governments to commit transnational oppression. So that's Central Asian governments, but also Belarus. And it's this sort of you know, increasingly repressive authoritarian neighborhood where people are just really not safe. And those people are also sort of trapped there because a lot of them can't enter other countries, right? And so they have the kind of Soviet era, you know, no visas, kind of open borders that help them move from one country to another, but all of those countries are equally unsafe for them.
0: So very recently on January 9th, a Russian citizen was traveling from Latvia to France, where he planned to request asylum but he had a layover in Czechia where he was arrested by Czech police in the Prague airport in response to a Russian warrant. So I wanted to ask you about Interpol abuse and how that's changed, because I'm wondering why European countries would ever comply, especially now, with these Russian Interpol alerts when there are so many examples of Russia using this international warrant system to target its political enemies?
3: Yeah, Interpol is an interesting kind of agency. So I guess the first thing to explain is that, you know, even calling them arrest warrants, it's not true, right? These aren't, if you have an Interpol notice, it's not an arrest warrant. Interpol is not a policing agency. It's an information sharing agency. And so what a notice is, is just being flagged that you are wanted for some reason. It is not like an international arrest warrant. So I think that's one thing. So like when we think about Interpol, we think, oh, it's an international arrest warrant, but it's not. It's just information sharing. But countries do invest quite a bit into Interpol and for obvious reasons, right? Interpol helps countries share information about terrorists, organized crime, lost passports, kidnapped children, you know, all of these things. And so countries have a vested interest in maintaining Interpol as an organization and acting on the notices it puts out. And so that's one of the reasons that countries continue to act on Interpol notices that are issued by countries like Russia that are issued by China, you know, Syria recently got its full kind of privileges back at Interpol. So, you know, this is not kind of unique to, to the Russian case. And it's also not unique that countries continue to, to detain people, even in the context of this war, even in Europe, where I think people are probably more aware of the war than they are in, in other places as kind of a daily fact of life. So Interpol, I would say, you know, there's been efforts to change Interpol from the inside to make it more transparent, you know, for instance, to, to allow you to say, search your da- search the database for your own name, like to see if you're actually wanted, because if you are, then traveling across borders is actually really dangerous and you may want to not do that. It's not really possible to do that. They don't put all their information online. They don't put all the notices online. Um, so some countries are taking their own kind of efforts to mitigate the threat. So, for instance, the U.S. actually issued um, in twenty twenty three special. The Justice Department issued special guidelines that you you can't be detained solely on an interval notice. So there has to be some other kind of something underneath that, and and that's great. So because actually. There were a couple of Russian citizens, this was years ago, but who were held in ICE detention because of Interpol notices from Russia. And they spent, you know, a really long time in ICE detention in otherwise very ordinary immigration proceedings. So this is a this is a real threat.
0: So aside from Interpol abuse and abductions like what happened in Kyrgyzstan and Armenia last year, what are the other tools in Russia's transnational repression toolbox? I mean, obviously, they're assassinations, but that's pretty extreme. So what else does Russia do?
3: Yeah, definitely. Assassinations. I think what we saw in 2022 and 2023 is an increasing number of kind of suspicious, I would say, poisonings, especially against journalists. There was a couple of there were a couple of cases of journalists in Georgia and in Germany experiencing poisoning symptoms. And I think at least in Germany, that's being investigated um, by the police.
0: One of these cases was that of Yelena Kostuchenko, who was working at Medusa in October 2022 when doctors believe she was poisoned. This appears to have happened when she was on a trip to Munich, where she had a visa appointment at the Ukrainian consulate. Apart from Kostuchenko, at least two other Russian women appear to have been poisoned outside of Russia in the last two years. Journalist Irina Bablayan from Echo of Moscow and Natalia Arno, the president of the Free Russia Foundation. So, you
3: know, Detentions, renditions, assassinations, um, unlawful deportations—those are all part of Russia's uh, toolkit. And assaults—we've uh, had a few assaults, places like you know Sweden or even Argentina, a few others. We've seen now also we did some work on exiled journalists being targeted. So obviously, this is a huge issue with Russia now because most of the independent media has left not even most all of the independent russian media has left russia and so operates entirely from abroad and many of those journalists who have continued to work for russian outlets have families at home in russia and increasingly we're seeing those people th- be threatened or at least pressured to you know either contact these are in a lot of cases these are parents who so contact their children and tell them to discontinue their work or return you know or some some kind of other threat So this is coercion by proxy, which we see governments like China do and increasingly seeing governments like Russia do as well. I think the one that we don't know as much about is sort of digital transnational repression, although I imagine that happens. And there was actually cases in 2022 where... Russians who had for a long time lived abroad in Southeast Asia were being really active online and participating in chats or doing something on YouTube. And it seems like Russia was able to request some of those governments to try and basically revoke their residency permits, get them deported. So clearly, you know, the kind of things that you do on the Internet are are becoming more and more of a problem for the government as well.
0: I want to shift to Belarus for a second. In September, Alexander Lukashenko issued a decree that made it impossible for citizens to extend their passports or get new ones at embassies or consulates abroad. So doing that now requires people to go back to Belarus, where a lot of them either have criminal cases waiting or, you know, other good reason to fear political prosecution. But the only other option that leaves them with is to stay in countries without proper documentation. So does this fall under the transnational repression rubric?
3: Yeah, we definitely consider mobility controls, which is what this would be, a form of transnational repression. You know, this would be sort of the maybe non-physical form of transnational repression. We see other governments use this, right? China for a long time has been restricting Uyghurs' access to passports. And and in general, embassies and consulates are a site of transnational repression. I mean, you you know, all you have to do is think about what happened to Jamal Shogi, you know, a consulate in Istanbul. Just
0: a reminder, Jamal Khashoggi was a Saudi journalist who had previously worked as an advisor to the Saudi royal family. In 2017, he fled Saudi Arabia and settled in the U.S., where he began writing columns for the Washington Post that were often critical of the Saudi government. In October 2018, he was killed and dismembered in Saudi Arabia's consulate in Istanbul, where he'd gone to pick up documents he needed to marry his Turkish fiancé the next day. So
3: this is something that governments do. It you know and it builds upon we we were already hearing that people were being threatened in Belarusian embassies when they went in for documents or something else and they were sort of being threatened and shown in some cases photographs of themselves participating in protests abroad. So participating in pro-democracy protests abroad. So yeah, I think this is all kind of par for the course. We know that, you know, Belarus had the the really striking example of transnational repression when they landed the Orion air flight to get to arrest a journalist who was on board.
0: Here's another quick reminder in case you missed this story. In the spring of 2021, Belarusian journalist Roman Protasevich was detained in Belarus after the authorities forced his Ryanair flight from Athens to Vilnius to land in Minsk. The authorities also detained his girlfriend, a Russian citizen named Sofia Sapiega. In May 2022, she was sentenced to six years in prison for her work as an editor for a Telegram channel that published Belarusian security officials' personal data. In April 2023, it was announced that she would be extradited to Russia to serve the rest of her sentence there. Protosevich was sentenced to eight years in prison, but he was later pardoned.
3: Several Belarusians were actually kidnapped and, and brought back to Minsk from Moscow in 2022, including one who was a U.S. citizen, a so Belarusian U.S. citizen. And just other, there were people who were operating telegram channels who had been living in Russia who were Belarusians and who you know were part of the pro-democracy movement who were deported back to Minsk. So yeah, this is Belarus is is definitely perpetrating transnational oppression.
0: So it seems like in a lot of ways, Russia is happy for most of its critics and dissidents to go abroad, even if it tries to silence them. Putin called it a self-cleansing of society pretty soon after the full-scale war started, whereas Belarus apparently wants everyone to come back and face prosecution. Is that a fair characterization?
3: You know, it's always a challenge to think about what autocrats want and how they're actually accomplishing these things. And, you know, as I said in the beginning, I think things shift over time. So it depends a lot on the situation situation at home. So I think for a long time with the war, and this has been true for a long time just with autocrats, often exile or letting people leave is sort of a safety valve for authoritarian regimes because instead of kind of shooting protests, you can just let people go. If they want to leave, they can leave. But there's a point in which that becomes either costly or, you know, or kind of the image of it is not what you want. And so then things kind of get reversed. But then there's also just in terms of tactics, I would say there's kind of a really brutal cost effectiveness to some measures and not others. So, for example, a presidential decree that revokes people's right to renew their passport abroad is a really simple thing. It'll catch a lot of people, right? It'll it'll impede the mobility and it will complicate the lives of a lot of people, but it is a really cheap measure for a government. Whereas poisoning someone with, you know, a nuclear element is kind of a costly operation to do. So you're probably not gonna poison a lot of people that way, right? So these things are kind of for or digital repression, right? For certain countries that already have a really you know, extensive infrastructure of digital monitoring and surveillance, digital repression for them is not a difficult thing to do. Um, whereas maybe getting someone through Interpol or getting someone or assassinating someone, maybe that is more difficult to do. So I think that's kind of the, there's some intersection between the interests of the regime at a particular given time and what kind of tools they have already and how complicated it is to use any of those tools.
0: Do you wanna talk real quick about Freedom House's new report that's coming out at the end of the month?
3: Yeah, so our next, it's not a report, we're just doing, so what Freedom House does is we have a, a database of physical direct incidents of transnational repression And it starts in 2014. And so every year in December and January, we update it with new cases and it will include cases from 2023. You know, and I I don't want to kind of give away any of the data, but I will say that sort of Russia's continuing campaign against dissidents and anti-war activists is is going to be a sort of a main feature of, of this update.
1: Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.